Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. This is Dr. Marina. I'm going to do something a little difficult and share my story of becoming a doctor with you. My journey to becoming a doctor was kind of like a long sea voyage with some beautiful, clear, breezy days and some awful stormy days and everything in between. It involved a lot of people who helped me steer the ship in the right direction and a couple who steered me off course. It involved doing a lot of things right and doing a lot of things wrong and learning valuable lessons from all of it. I was born in East Los Angeles, California, but spent most of my years growing up about 100 miles east of there in one of California's growing suburbs. I have four brothers, two older brothers and two younger brothers. Growing up with all brothers was interesting. Let's just say that a lot of my dolls ended up headless, I heard a lot of fart jokes, and I sort of learned to stand up for myself. My parents both immigrated from Mexico to Los Angeles in their teenage years. My parents both did well in school and got their high school diplomas, but neither one attended college until much later in life. They seemed pretty happy to just follow traditional roles. My dad supported the family through many different jobs. He was a carpenter, a car mechanic, a real estate agent, even a blood bank technician. My mom was pretty happy as a stay-at-home mom to five children. I grew up speaking Spanish at home until about age five when my grandma passed away. After that, my parents encouraged us to speak English at home, thinking it would help us to succeed in school and in life overall in the United States. My parents never had much money, but at some point they began to really struggle financially. I remember going to the grocery store one time with my mom, and all she had was a $20 bill. And when we went to the checkout line to pay, she realized that she had lost the $20 bill. And we went frantically searching for it. This was all she had to buy groceries for the week. We went to the car, and we said a little prayer together, hoping that the money would appear. And I don't remember exactly how it happened, but it did. And we were able to buy groceries for the week. Around the time I was eight years old, my mom decided to go back to school to become a teacher in order to help support the family financially. She started at a community college and transferred to a four-year college. I saw her work really hard to take care of five kids, work part-time as a teacher's aide to earn money, and take college classes. Since I was a pretty shy and quiet kid, I would sometimes go with her to her evening classes. I would sit in the back of the class, just doing my homework or reading a book, while she sat there listening to lectures and taking notes. I spent many days during my summer vacations helping her in her classroom, decorating the walls, helping organize homework packets, and leading children in small group activities. I whined about the extra work sometimes, but looking back, I consider myself really lucky to have had a parent who saw the value of education and exposed me to that when I was young. I think that because of my mom's example, my dad was even motivated to go back to school a few years later, and he became a teacher as well. 
Even though my parents didn't go to college early in life, they knew that books were good for us and filled the house with storybooks and a few encyclopedias. My mom also helped my brothers and me with our homework when we needed it, even into high school. In school, I was mostly obedient and eager to please. I loved getting positive reinforcement and praise. For some reason I can't really explain, I was the one in the family with the most academic ambition. I didn't really know what I wanted to do as an adult, but I kind of knew I wanted to do something that involved getting a college degree and earning a comfortable living. In middle school, I started to get involved in school leadership, and I'm embarrassed to admit, I even had fun twirling a baton with the school majorettes team. After that, the high school I attended did not have a great reputation. It was known more for its gang violence and rates of teen pregnancy than for academic excellence. However, there were some wonderful and dedicated teachers that helped me grow and encouraged me to do the best I could. I especially had excellent English and math teachers who challenged me and helped me to develop my writing and math skills. I joined a few clubs, including the Future Business Leaders of America, or FBLA, and the Mock Trial Team. My FBLA advisor was a truly dedicated teacher who helped me develop skills in business communication and leadership. My mock trial team really forced me to come out of my shy shell and develop my skills in public speaking. I started running cross country and track in 10th grade after I tried out for volleyball and didn't make the team. My chemistry teacher happened to be my coach and encouraged me to do well in both classes and in sports. I made new friends who were also dedicated to being good students and athletes, and we had a lot of fun together. By the way, if you want to develop mental endurance, train yourself to run long distances. Running three to six miles a day didn't just help me physically. It helped train my mind to keep me going even when my body did not want to. My family was pretty religious, so I was also involved in a lot of volunteer and social activities through my church. I had a small but close group of friends of various racial and ethnic backgrounds, white, Latino, Filipino, Korean, and Black, and we helped motivate each other. In fact, we sometimes secretly competed with each other for good grades. I think it was at some point during high school that the idea of becoming a doctor entered my mind. I remember my dad, for some reason, bought some anatomy books, including one full of pictures of human cadavers, and they fascinated me. I didn't know any doctors or even nurses personally, but I watched enough movies and TV shows to have a romanticized idea of what it was like to be a doctor. You got to learn a bunch of cool science, wear a snazzy white coat, help save people's lives, and make a pretty good living. Spoiler alert, that's not always the way it works out. The summer before my senior year, my high school counselor nominated me for a summer program through NASA. I spent the summer in Atlanta, Georgia, learning from graduate students in an aerospace engineering lab. That experience further opened my eyes to the world of four-year universities, graduate school, and the endless opportunities that a college education could offer me. I ended up applying to some local colleges, as well as some top universities around the country. I was stunned and excited when I got my acceptance letters to Stanford University, Johns Hopkins, and a few other great schools. Now, you would think my parents would be really excited, but 
having a child moving away from home to college wasn't something expected in my parents' culture. So while they were proud, they were also afraid of how much it would cost and afraid of me being away from home. And my mom actually encouraged me to attend a local college like she had. Other people also seemed to have opinions about whether I belonged at Stanford or not. At my church summer camp, the summer after I graduated, a kind but clueless woman started chatting with me about my future plans. I told her I would be going to Stanford. She looked at me wide-eyed and skeptical and said, you know you're supposed to apply there, right? I explained that yes, I had graduated at the top of my class and been accepted. Her disbelief that someone like me could get into Stanford spoke volumes about what society expected from people who looked like me. In the end, my parents supported me, and I spent the next four years at Stanford. It was an incredible place to spend four years, and it opened so many doors for me. But I must admit that I did not know what I was doing at first. Even though my mom had gone to college, the level of expectations and competition where she had gone was very different. I found myself suddenly surrounded by very hardworking and accomplished peers, some of whom had come from very privileged backgrounds. I had a classmate whose dad was a billionaire and who enjoyed flying private jets as a hobby. I saw Chelsea Clinton, the daughter of then-President Bill Clinton, walking around campus, being followed by Secret Service agents. At the same time, there were many other students who were more like me and came from more average backgrounds. I spent my freshman year living in a multicultural dorm called Casa Zapata, where diversity was respected and celebrated. What I came to realize the hard way, however, was that my educational background in the sciences was not nearly as strong as it needed to be. After participating in the NASA program, I was tempted to major in engineering. But biology and medicine also called to me, so I thought, why don't I major in engineering and biology? Then I can develop a career in biomedical engineering. My first year of college, I did pretty well in my writing and humanities classes, but I really struggled in chemistry classes. It seemed like everything I had learned in high school chemistry class was covered in the first two weeks of my college chemistry course and everything after that seemed completely new and challenging. I found myself surrounded by other students who were also determined to get top grades so that they could get into medical school, and they seemed to be much more prepared than I was. My second year is when I started to take even more challenging courses. I took a full year of what was called the biology core. These were the three main introductory classes that were required to become a biology major and they were also required for anyone wanting to fulfill their pre-medical school requirements. These classes were held in a huge lecture hall with about 200 or 300 students. They were taught by a variety of professors who were experts in their fields of study. Taking those classes felt exhilarating but terrifying at the same time. Everything was new and fascinating, but some lectures might as well have been in a foreign language. There were so many new words and concepts flying at me at once that it was really hard to keep up. Sometimes I would get lost in the middle of a lecture and I would just stay confused for the rest of it. I looked around and everyone else seemed to be nodding and following along. I went home and I studied the best I could 
but I was embarrassed to ask for help because I felt like admitting that I was so confused would expose me as a fraud who really didn't belong at Stanford. I think that on some level, I was just afraid to reinforce stereotypes about Latina women, such as the stereotype that we're just not cut out for ambitious science careers. My second year, I also started taking the requirements for an engineering major. These included introduction to electrical engineering and introduction to computer science. Like with biology, I found myself lost and feeling alone. In some ways, these classes were worse than biology because I found myself in rooms full of mostly men, many of whom seemed to have been coding and building circuits since they were in elementary school. I ended up getting a D and an F in my first biology courses. It is painful and embarrassing to admit, but that's what happened. I actually did okay in computer science thanks to a friend who helped tutor me, and I squeaked by with a C in electrical engineering. By the middle of my second year, I had to take a step back and decide what I really wanted to do with my life. I agonized a lot over it. I turned to my faith in God to help me know what the right decision was for me. Eventually, I decided that the idea of giving back to my community by becoming a doctor excited me more than the idea of becoming an engineer. So I decided to focus all of my energy on conquering biology. I retook the biology core classes, and I hunkered down on catching up on what many of my classmates seemed to already know. Over time, and with a lot of practice and perseverance, I got better at managing my time, studying effectively, and asking for help. You should know that this improvement did not happen all at once, or in a straight line. It happened very gradually. It took learning from a lot more mistakes. But I kept trying, and I kept learning, and I kept improving. Even though I was improving, though, I spent a lot of time doubting myself and worrying that I wasn't good enough. If I'm totally honest, I started to struggle with depression during college. There were so many negative thoughts entering my mind constantly. Thoughts about not being good enough and worry that I would never reach my goal of becoming a doctor. My mind was constantly trying to ignore these negative thoughts, but I didn't really have the tools at the time to retrain my mind. I didn't know or I didn't want to seek help because I had never known anyone who went to therapy. Going to a therapist felt like I would be admitting that there was something deeply wrong with me. Plus, my religious background had taught me that if you have a problem, you can usually pray it away. That didn't work, but I kept believing it anyway for a while. In the middle of everything going on my second year of college, I met another student named Christian. He was also majoring in biology and wanted to pursue a career as a marine biologist. He was kind, funny, a hard worker, and loved learning like I did. He encouraged me in my career goals, cheered me up when I got sad or frustrated, and made a great study partner in many biology, chemistry, and physics classes. We made the crazy decision to get married after just 10 months of dating. By the way, this was not unusual in our religious tradition. Our parents and friends probably all thought we were crazy, but we're still together 18 years later. I do not recommend getting married this young to anybody. We took a big risk and are very lucky that it worked out. 
we graduated from college together two years later. We took a year off to catch our breath and to do some research that would improve our chances when we applied to medical and graduate school. Given how much I'd struggled in science classes during my first two years of college, I was really worried that I wouldn't get into medical school. I knew I had to get a good score on the MCAT to be competitive. That's the medical college admissions test, which is the test you have to take to get into medical school. I took the summer after my junior year to focus on studying for the test. I could not afford to take a prep class, which cost over $1,000. So I bought some test prep books and spent eight hours a day at the library, Monday through Friday, for about two months. It was a nerve-wracking eight-hour-long test, but I ended up getting a good score. I also received some nice letters of recommendation from professors I had gotten to know through classes and through some research. I ended up getting accepted into medical school at UC San Diego, and my husband Christian got into the marine biology PhD program at the same school. So a few months later, we headed to San Diego for the next chapter of our lives. I was so excited, but also nervous to start medical school. The ceremony where I received my short white coat during orientation felt like a dream come true. But I also knew from what I'd heard that medical school would be even more difficult than college had been. I had been told that medical school was like drinking from a fire hose. You had to learn so much information at such a quick pace, and this turned out to be true. It wasn't far into my first year that feelings of worry and inadequacy started to creep back in. I was doing my best and learning a lot, but once again, I looked around and felt like most people were having an easier time than I was. I remember sitting in the student lounge one day and overhearing another student, it was this white surfer guy, I think, saying out loud, I thought medical school would be hard, but so far it's pretty easy. I glared at him in disbelief. It didn't help that there were very few Black or Latino students at my medical school. There were just a few of us, and we learned to cling together for support. There were very few faculty members that looked like us. Thinking that I was somehow less capable than everyone around me caused me to feel sad and worried a lot of the time. I was spending hours a day crying and wanting to sleep the stress away, rather than study. My husband begged me to seek help. I reluctantly agreed and went to my school's counseling and psychological services office. I started to see a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with depression and recommended that I start medication. He told me it was common for medical students to experience depression or anxiety during medical school. He assured me that there was nothing wrong with me but that depression could be a normal reaction to extreme stress, like trying to make it through medical school. I followed his recommendation to start medication, and I pretty quickly noticed that it made a big difference for me. The stress of medical school wasn't magically gone, but I could face the stress better. I spent less time crying and more time studying. Cognitive behavioral therapy helped teach me that I could, with practice, train my mind to question my negative thoughts. I could actually retrain my brain to believe more positive things about myself and about life. Things definitely did not change overnight, but things slowly got better. 
Unfortunately, during my anatomy class my second year, I failed one too many tests. I did well on the tests where we had to identify structures, but the written tests were harder. During the last and hardest part of the class, I could tell I was at risk of failing it, and so I went to my anatomy professor to ask for help. He basically said, I'm sorry, but I don't want to spoon feed students information. Helping you wouldn't be fair to everyone else. I can't help you. Ouch. I left his office infuriated. I was doing the right thing by asking for help, which was very difficult for me, but he was unwilling to provide it. He wasn't the only professor, unfortunately, with that kind of attitude. I received similar replies from at least two other professors later on. I ended up failing that head and neck anatomy test. I sat fearfully in front of a large committee of faculty members and deans when I officially got the news that I would have to retake the class. They explained that since anatomy was only offered once a year, I would have to wait until the following year to retake it and would be placed on academic probation in the meantime. It was humiliating and demoralizing. I had tried so hard to fight the voice in my head that was telling me I wasn't good enough to be a doctor. And there I was in front of a committee of doctors and professors, basically confirming that I wasn't good enough. I was devastated. I felt like my dream had been shattered. It's still hard for me to replay that experience. On my way home from the committee meeting, I was sobbing, struggling to see the road clearly through my tears. I had the radio turned on to a country music station. Suddenly, a song I'd never heard came on. The chorus to the song went like this. I'm in a hurry to get things done, so I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I really gotta do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. The words of that chorus hit my mind like lightning from heaven. I have always had faith in a God that wants the best for us, and I felt like God was telling me right then and there to pause, take a step back, look at the bigger picture, and realize that everything was going to be okay. I realized that I was so focused on this one goal of becoming a doctor and following a specific timeline that I wasn't enjoying the journey. I was making myself miserable, thinking that there was only one way to accomplish my goal. I later met with my faculty mentor, who encouraged me and told me, there are many hurdles on the way to becoming a doctor. This is just a hurdle. You will jump over it. After recovering from the grief of that failure, I decided I would make the most of the rest of that year. I took some interesting elective classes. I tried to study some topics in advance for the next year. I spent some time on projects for the Latino Medical Student Association, American Medical Student Association, and the Border Health Project. I spent a month in Oaxaca, Mexico, shadowing doctors there and sightseeing. I started a garden in the neglected yard of our small apartment. I bought myself a new sewing machine and taught myself to sew. I repainted my apartment. I spent more time with my husband and my adorable pet rabbits. I also bonded with a handful of other students, including some of my minority friends, who had also been held back or chose to take an extra year due to academic struggles. The rest of the year passed quickly and I soon rejoined the next year's class back in anatomy. I passed the class and continued the year. 
classes were still hard. I still struggled with depression, and there were a few more hiccups, but I finished off the year. I took step one of the United States Licensing Medical Exam, or USMLE, and passed, which allowed me to move on to my clinical clerkships. My third and fourth years were the years I finally got to spend in clinics and hospitals with patients. I rotated through the standard rotations, surgery, internal medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, psychiatry, pediatrics, and neurology, as well as family medicine. The specialty of pediatrics had appealed to me before, but I went into my third year with an open mind, trying to figure out what specialty would be the best fit for my future. Being in the hospital most of the time was a lot more exciting than sitting in a lecture hall or in a library studying, but it also presented a new set of challenges. Every few weeks I was on a new service, working with new doctors and residents and patients. Some teams were friendlier than others. One of my favorite rotations was surgery, where I got to observe many open heart surgeries, trauma surgeries, plastic surgeries, and surgeries on children. I loved the possibility of working with my hands to help fix people's problems, and I especially loved the field of pediatric surgery. But the culture of surgery was harsh. It required very long hours compared to other specialties. The field was still dominated by men, and there were a few surgeons and surgical residents that honestly were just arrogant bullies. Given my mental health struggles, I was not sure I could survive five years of residency in that type of culture. I really enjoyed some of my other rotations, like psychiatry and family medicine, but I found myself frustrated with some older patients who seemed unwilling to break bad habits in order to help improve their health. When I got to my pediatrics rotation, there was a feeling of belonging. Pediatricians seemed to be pretty happy and kind people overall, and the culture was much more welcoming. I enjoyed working with patients of a variety of ages and stages, from newborns to teenagers. I learned that as a pediatrician, I could work in a clinic or in a hospital or both. I could treat everything from acne to broken bones, and I could do some hands-on procedures, which I enjoyed. I graduated from medical school feeling overjoyed that I had made it through. But because of my academic struggles, I had come to see some of the problems with medical education. I saw how forces like stereotype threat, implicit bias, imposter syndrome, and the lack of role models and mentors for underrepresented students made the path more difficult than it had to be. I saw how my medical school curriculum favored certain types of learning over others, making it hard for some students to succeed. I became interested in learning more about how medical school education could be changed to make room for more types of people. So instead of going straight to residency, I took a year to get a master's degree in education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It was a wonderful year where I got to explore a new place and take classes in curriculum development, technology and education, group learning, adult learning, and many other topics. A year later, I started my residency training in pediatrics back in Los Angeles at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center, which is one of LA County's safety net hospitals. There were 10 of us in my residency class. Nine of us were women, and eight of us were racial or ethnic minorities. My patients were mostly Latino, low income, and sometimes undocumented. 
One patient in particular named Antonio, I changed his name for privacy reasons, helped me to recognize my potential and come to love being a doctor. He was an undocumented teenager who had suddenly developed pain in his bones. He didn't have insurance, so his family brought him to our hospital's emergency room, hoping for a quick diagnosis and fix. An exam and a few blood tests revealed he had a type of cancer called leukemia. Because of his age and the type of cancer cells that were found, his chances of recovering were poor. However, the hospital helped him get emergency insurance coverage, and he began treatment with chemotherapy. He was in and out of the hospital for about a year. My co-residents and I all took turns caring for him during his hospital stays. And through him and others, we learned all about leukemia and how to treat it. When I was assigned to work night shifts and the hospital was quiet with nothing to do, I would go visit with him and his older sister, who often stayed the night with him. Antonio had a great sense of humor, and we would tell jokes and laugh together in Spanish. I would help explain the treatments that were being given, the side effects to watch for, and what his daily blood tests had shown. Even with chemotherapy treatments, however, Antonio slowly got worse. He developed ulcers and infections from being too weak to get out of bed. He passed away a year later, surrounded in his hospital bed by his loving family and many of the doctors and nurses who had cared for him. We cried together, mourning the loss of a young, vibrant life. Luckily, most of the children with cancer we cared for had much happier endings. Most of them recovered and went on to live long, normal lives. Looking back, I think that Harbor UCLA was the perfect environment for me to finish my training. It was an environment where I was no longer a visible minority. My patients mostly looked like me. My co-residents and I were all from different backgrounds, but we bonded over common interests as well as shared experiences like taking care of Antonio. Apart from learning to take care of kids with cancer, I learned to help care for premature babies, kids with appendicitis, kids in car accidents, kids with ear infections, healthy kids, and everything in between. Residency was hard. I sometimes worked 80 hours a week for weeks at a time and sometimes spent 28 hours straight at the hospital without sleeping. But I didn't struggle like I had in medical school. After all, Patients didn't walk in with a multiple-choice question written on their forehead. They walked in wanting someone who would listen to them, empathize with them, and help them figure out how to get better. Working with patients directly motivated me to learn as much as I could about how to help them. I did get sad and frustrated sometimes, and I saw a therapist when I had time, but I didn't need antidepressants anymore to get by. I got good evaluations. I passed all my board exams without a problem. Graduating from residency was another joyful milestone in my life. I started my first job out of training at a community health center in San Diego. I had gone into medicine to help give back to my community and that's what I did. The community health center, like the hospital where I had trained, served mostly Latino low-income families, as well as many military families. I loved the patients I worked with, and I felt like I was really making a difference in the community. I saw lots of healthy kids for checkups and vaccines. 
I also saw lots of kids with chronic conditions like asthma, ADHD, and obesity. I started a nutrition program for children struggling with childhood obesity, and I spent many Saturday mornings teaching kids and their parents about whole grains, doing Zumba, and cooking healthy recipes together. I worked on a project to help families with asthma understand how to help their kids use their medications properly. We used animated videos in English and Spanish. I worked with some amazing doctors, nurse practitioners, nurses, medical assistants, dental hygienists, psychologists, lactation specialists, and staff. Unfortunately, after a few years there, I started to feel burned out. Working full-time and trying to address the needs of my complex patients in short 10 to 15 minute visits started to wear on me. I felt like I couldn't always do the best for my patients because of the very limited time I had to spend with them. I also realized that seeing 20 to 30 patients per day, five days a week, was really exhausting, especially for an introvert like me. I needed more time to replenish my energy and take care of myself. A family situation prompted my husband and me to move to Utah in 2018. I knew I needed a break from the demands of primary care, so I took a job in pediatric urgent care. I get to work fewer hours and my schedule is more flexible, but I still help take care of children with a variety of problems. I see kids with colds, flus, strep throat, ear infections, skin infections, cuts that need stitches, broken bones, asthma, appendicitis, and a whole lot more. My flexible schedule has allowed me to spend time doing other things I enjoy, volunteering as an admissions committee interviewer, volunteering at the student run-free clinic, mentoring college students, joining book clubs, gardening, cooking, running, and most recently, starting this podcast. I've shared a lot about my journey with you in this episode. Some of it has been really hard to share. Even now, as a pretty successful doctor, I feel embarrassed to admit some of my struggles. I do it, though, because I hope you can learn from it. I hope you will see that even if you look a certain way, or speak a certain way, or have a rough life, or don't have a lot of money, or don't think you're good at science, or writing, or math, or don't go to a great high school or college, or struggle with physical or mental health issues. You can become a doctor if you set your mind on it. It might not be easy, but you can do it. If you feel any desire or calling to become a doctor, please, please consider it. Learn about what it's like to actually be a doctor. Learn what will be required to get into medical school. Learn how to be resilient and confident despite what society tells you. Learn how to take care of yourself so that you can help take care of others. This podcast will help you do all of that. What you need to do is listen. Decide for yourself if being a doctor is what you really want. And if it is, then give it your best shot. You might find, like we did, that there are some extra hurdles along the way. But like my mentor told me, you can jump over them and succeed in the end. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.